Despite their multi-star hotels, air conditioning, and modern built environments, Mecca, Medina, and Jeddah are in the desert. Muslims perform the Hajj in this climate every year in search of lofty spiritual benefits. But it's worthy of reflection why so much of this ritual involves traveling, living with others, and finding shelter and shade together in the stark, barren, alien world of limited vegetation and heat so unbearable that only the most well-adapted creatures can survive there. A place of sharp contrasts and stark contradictions, burning heat and freezing cold, calm in one moment and tempestuous the next. A place which, amazingly, is at the center of Muslim devotion. The Prophet Abraham, peace be upon him, was once visited in the desert by unknown travelers. He proffered the best of his hospitality, and the visitors, who turned out to be far more otherworldly than mere desert wanderers, gave him and his wife Sarah the good news about the arrival of their son Isaac, peace be upon them all. In the Quranic narrative, Sarah laughs with wonder at how she could be with child given that she is aged and barren. The desert is full of surprises and life-giving and life-renewing hospitality. Pilgrims travel to and through this land seeking to fulfill the fifth pillar of their faith, and the shelter of pilgrimage is itself its own miraculous shade, and the holy cities of the Hijaz, places of boundless life, spiritual renewal, and hospitality. I'm joined today by desert travelers who have spent time in the Hijaz as dwellers, wanderers, and pilgrims, and who can give us a sense of how pilgrims find shelter and shade in the exposure of the desert. Haris Faruqi works in data engineering, is an avid student of Islamic studies, and lives with his wife in New Jersey. He shares an incredible story of desert power and divine grace during his pilgrimage. Amira Rizik lives in Cairo, Egypt, and is a marketing manager and a youth coach. She takes us on a journey of finding new life in the desert rituals. But before we turn to their vivid stories and reflections, I connected with my friend and colleague, Dr. Beznik Sanani. Beznik is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Chair of Hadith Studies and Prophetic Traditions at the Center for Islamic Theology at the University of Tübingen. He specializes in the history of the Hijaz and Sira literature. I asked him some questions about shelter and shade in the Hajj and how people find physical shelter from the harshness of the environment and also the shade of divine mercy. So Besnik, one thing that we have continuously seen in the series so far is that the main stage of the Hajj certainly seems to be Mecca, but that this pilgrimage gathering involves places far beyond the confines of the Haram sanctuary, especially in the cities of gathering and in Medina. Can you talk to us a little bit about these two dual cities or twin cities in the Hajj, Mecca and Medina, and how they have been visited by pilgrims for the Ziyara and the different kinds of space and shelter that each place offers. 
Right. Um, the Hajj is, in many ways, is um, it is every Muslim's attempt to kind of become part of sacred history by partaking to the Abrahamic journey. The journey which, as Kierkegaard put it, is all about the effort to continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Although a Muslim would have perhaps said that it is about continuing to work out your salvation through fear and hope. The reoccurring drama of the Abrahamic journey, as relived and reenacted in the Hajj, however, takes place in the space of uh, the sacred geography of the Hijaz, the sacred calendars and the sacred economies, or what we call uh, baraka. And they are interchangeably linked to notions of memories, rituals, and cosmologies. So, technically speaking, the Hajj is limited to the sacred geography of Mecca and its surroundings, including Minna, Muzdalifah, and Arafat. But in reality, it involves the wider territories of the Hijaz. So, one can think of the Mikat, right? The stations that precede the arrival to Mecca, where pilgrims enter into the state of Ihram. But there are a number of other important stations along the road. So, of course, historically, Jeddah has been considered the gateway, the Bawaba to Mecca. And it is believed that the third caliph, uh, Sayyidina Uthman ibn Affan, built actually the port city of Jeddah precisely in order to serve the pilgrims. Jeddah, however, held its own significance as a station to the sacred journey, given that the very name of the city is linked to Eve, to the mother of humanity. Until 1926, right outside the city walls, pilgrims would go to visit what they believed to be the domed uh, resting place of Eve. And of course, the structure was demolished when the city fell to the Wahhabi troops of the future king of Saudi Arabia, King Abdelaziz. But prior to that moment, the tomb of Eve was a station of some sort, if you will, in this journey of the pilgrims. The Dutch Orientalist, Snuku Gronje, who lived in the Hijaz prior to the Saudi rule, tells us that the pilgrims would visit the many yards long Mother of Mankind cemetery and then hired camels for their two-day journey to Mecca. And of course, although the visit to Medina is not technically part of the Hajj, hardly any pilgrim would miss the opportunity to visit the Prophet and his mosque. And Hugronia gives us another uh, interesting account. He tells us that although Meccans could boast as being neighbors of God, right, they venerated Medina to the degree that the return of a Meccan from a visit to Medina was an event of celebration, of hosting guests for a party, of offering food and gifts, since it was considered such a remarkable event even in a Meccan's life. So as we think about the pilgrimage experience of the past, we cannot think of the Hajj and the visit to Mecca and the surrounding pilgrimage sites as disconnected from the wider constellation of other sites of visitation, key among them uh, Medina, the illuminated city of the Prophet, Medina al Manawara. So even in Mecca itself, for pilgrims before 1925, when the holy city fell to the Saudi troops, as various records show us, um, there were a number of important landmarks whose visitation was part of the Hajj experience. And these landmarks were all part of this spiritual structure that was anchored on the Muslim love and veneration for the Prophet Muhammad, alayhi salatu
Among these landmarks, the most prominent were certainly the house where the Prophet was born, the house of Khadija, the place where Fatima Zahra was born, the Mala Cemetery, and so on. Today, most, if not all, of those sites have been demolished, fundamentally altering the sense of the sacred of a, a pilgrim walking in the streets of Mecca would have experienced. That's such a beautiful history and a retelling of the relationship between Mecca and Medina. And I'd like to ask you some follow-up about that, about how pilgrims would have experienced these two places, perhaps. Or if, if we can't talk directly about experiences, maybe that's a little too historically vague. But um, how, did, how do you think these cities have been viewed as different kinds of shelters? How is Mecca characterized in the Hajj and how is Medina characterized in the Hajj? Or in the Hajj uh, sort of imagination of the Hajj or the writing on the Hajj? Well, let me, let me take perhaps um, a different route towards that, that question. And let me bring attention again to the city of Jeddah. And the reason being that contrary to both Mecca and Medina, where the old cities have been totally uh, destroyed, in the Belit district of Jeddah, which used to be the old city, some of the traditional buildings have survived despite decades of demolitions and neglect. So today one can still visit uh, in, in Jeddah the impressive coral stone tall houses with the windows covered with finely carved screens, or the Roshans, as they are called in the Hijaz. And many of, of these tall buildings, like the famed Beit Nasif in Jeddah, during the pilgrimage season would offer shelter to the pilgrims. Additionally, the Sufi Ribats offered sheltered, and as did the coffee houses, as there were a number of inns in these uh, cities, and other pilgrims just erected makeshift tents in the narrow alleys of, of Jeddah. The survival of Suq al-Alawi, named after the well-known group of families of descendants of the Prophet Muhammad, which, and they are based mostly in Hadramaut in southern Yemen, but they have a historical presence in the Hijaz. So visiting the Suq al-Alawi can still give us a sense of the environment that pilgrims would have encountered. So pilgrimage constituted the most important economic activity of the people of the Hijaz, particularly for the people of Mecca and Jeddah and Medina, but also for the tribes in the region. So in addition to rents, an entire economy of wakils and mutatawifs, uh, who, who were these hajj guides and, and food suppliers, all of that was built around the pilgrimage. So I'd invite those who are interested on this topic and on the history of Jeddah in general to read the recent fascinating book of the German historian Ulrike Freitag titled The History of Jeddah, the Gate to Mecca in the 19th and 20th centuries, published by Cambridge University Press. So worth noting in, in what we have said so far is that pilgrims would become part of the city life, engaging with the locals, which is what gave the holy cities that much celebrated cosmopolitan character. As we're speaking about shelter, the holy cities being kind of out of reach of, for the colonial powers, they became much to the annoyance of colonial officials, especially in India and throughout Southeast Asia, an important refuge for anti-colonial activists as the work of Freitag or Rosie Bashir and, and Sima Alavi uh, have shown. Many of them became of this anti-colonial um, 
activists, they became members of the learned elites in the cities of Hijaz. And one can mention perhaps uh, that one of the first formal schools of Mecca, the Saulatiya, was founded in 1874 by Rahmatullah Kairanavi, who was uh, actually one of these Indian uh, anti-colonial activists. He was appointed as a scholar lecturing at the, at the Haram in Mecca, and he uh, founded this school um, thanks to the donations of a wealthy Indian woman, Saulat Anissa. So once again, changes to the nature of Hajj alter the nature of shelter. It is worth remembering, perhaps, that till the, the 1850s, the number of pilgrims was way smaller than today, uh, in the thousands or in the tens thousands, we can say on the lower side of that number. The introduction of the steamship in the 1830s, the Hijaz Railway in early uh, 20th century, which connected Damascus to Medina, but didn't go all the way to Mecca because of the outbreak of World War I. And from the 1950s, air travel facilitated traveling an increased number of pilgrims. So around the 1950s, we have the building of the city of pilgrims, uh, a set of buildings in southeast Jeddah that was dedicated only to the Hajis. By that time, the city had begun its transformation with the destruction of its historical surrounding walls and the emergence of more modern buildings outside the traditional confines of the Belad. Today, most Hajj journeys tend to sidestep Jeddah altogether. Uh, these days, a new modern train line, which I visited for the first time last October, connects Medina, the airport of Jeddah, South Jeddah, the area called Nasim, and Mecca, all part of this Vision 2030 of the kingdom to bring around 30 million visitors a year, uh, and among them, close to 7 million during the Hajj alone by the year 2030, which is double the number of the Hajjis uh, that participate today. These numbers alone and the infrastructure that supports them show us that, in the tr that the transformation of the pilgrimage experience goes beyond the demolition of the pious landmarks by the religious establishment in Saudi Arabia, the Wahhabis. As the historian Rosie Bashir has noted, in addition to Wahhabism, a major destructive force in Mecca has been capitalism. The majority of pilgrims today will totally avoid Jeddah, as I said, and will be placed in buses or trains that takes them uh, from a specific terminal straight to their hotel in Mecca, where the former domes and coral stone buildings have been replaced by concrete towers. The transformation of Mecca has led also to a sense of alienation of its inhabitants as the works of various young Saudi artists like Ahad Alamudi and Ahmed Matar shows, limiting and conditioning even the pilgrims' exchange with the local inhabitants. These transformations have, been, have even given rise to a form of nostalgia about the, the, the lost Hijaz. I'd highly recommend to listeners to search on Al Jazeera English website for an interview with a well-known Saudi architect, Sami Ankawi, titled The Man Who Longed for Mecca. In the webpage, one can see beautiful pictures of his house in Jeddah, where he has attempted to replicate the traditional architectural memory of his city of birth, of Mecca incorporating doors and wooden carved windows from the demolished houses of Mecca. Another local architect quoted in Freitag's work, Al-Mehdi, notes that for a distinctive historical city such as Medina, 
many visitors want to feel the spirit of the place through the traditional physical form that reflects the great heritage and deep meanings of Islamic civilization. However, upon arriving in Medina, the visitors will be both confused and amazed at the same time. They'll be confused by these bulky hotels and their obscure images, which have nothing to do with the city's heritage, while being amazed by the modern technologies that have presented, uh, that have been presented in the area and in the mosque. Besnik, you have really painted a sense for us of all of these practicalities of hosting the pilgrims and especially drawn um, a long durée history of how the sheltering in the Hajj has really changed and, and what pilgrims, you know, a hundred years ago would, would see and what we would see today. Um, maybe we can think about an area of continuity now, um, which is that inner shelter that Hajis must find during their pilgrimage as, and within the gathering itself. Because despite the crowd, uh, as we've talked about quite a bit in this podcast series, there is a loneliness in the gathering, a necessary aloneness, perhaps. Can you talk a little bit about the inner sheltering in the Hajj? Right. Uh, of course, it is perhaps ironic that that um, the Hajj is such a crowded experience, but at the same time, it is such a solitary journey. But, but perhaps... Um, Let's try to take this in another direction. Um, if, if we could go back to this discussion about the idea that the holy cities of the Hijaz kind of became shelters for Muslims escaping colonial rule. Um, not long ago, I was reading the, a book written by the late modern Muslim scholar Muhammad al-Ghazali and should not be confused. Uh, with the uh, celebrated Abu Hamid al-Ghazali. So the modern Ghazali, therefore, he wrote this book uh, titled Fik, uh, Fikh Asira, which basically means the normative understanding of the biography of the Prophet, uh, and, and in there he speaks about a group of Moroccans he met in Medina. And they told him that they were in Medina because of the tribulations in their own country due to colonial rule. And so they had come to find shelter in the vicinity of the Prophet. Now, true to his modernist and neo-Mu'tazilite leanings, as uh, Al-Ghazali has been described sometimes, he wrote quite critically of this tendency. And he basically said that a proper understanding of the Sira. Uh, would have been expressed in returning home and fighting against colonial rule. Now, be that as it may, it draws attention to this Muslim perception of the holy cities of both Mecca and Medina as shelters from tribulations. And of course, this is supported in a number of, of um, established texts, um, is especially um, the ones that address Muslim conceptions of eschatology. And they point to the idea that these cities, they offer some kind of metaphysical shelter. For example, right, to bring one example, is that um, there are these hadiths that uh, promise Muslims that uh, the Antichrist or the false messiah, the Dajjal, cannot enter Medina, right? So it's a kind of, it's, it's a shelter in that regard. Now, even if we think of one of the main uh, rituals of the Hajj, the Jamarat in Minna, which after all, uh, place it, it, it's about the recollection of Abraham's resistance and fight and eventually shooing away the devil. Uh, 
And that brings again the idea of the Hajj as a Muslim summoning to partake into the narrative of sacred history and in the space of sacred geography. Now, Muslims, however, are introduced into the Abrahamic story and told the signposts of, of his journey by the Ishmaelite prophet, by the prophet Muhammad, and it is through his guidance that Muslims are shown the ancient rituals and the stations of the journey. The Prophet is the one who leads the Muslims to the dramatic reenactment of humanity's final gathering at the Muzdalifah, to the relived journey of agony of Hajar searching for water to save the life of her infant son, the rejected Ishmael. And above all, the Prophet Muhammad is the one who makes the aspiring traveler through the Abrahamic journey aware of the meanings and goals of following the signposts and the rituals, which are about memory of the primordial state and about salvation and the return. So the Hajj is the Abrahamic journey, the journey of the patriarch, the, the father of the prophets and of the descendants of both Ishmael and Isaac. But the aspiring travelers are shown their way into this journey through the example and guidance of Muhammad. And as we know, the prophet's Hajj starts from Medina. So one way to put it metaphorically, perhaps, is that the way to Mecca passes through Medina, the prophet's illuminated city. And one needs to camp and find shelter with the Prophet Sunnah as a provision into the Abrahamic journey. So Muslim scholars have even engaged in some sort of comparative discussion about the virtues of Mecca and Medina. And although in a minority, there have been prominent scholars like Shihab al-Din al-Kastalani, a contemporary of Asuyuti, who argue that Medina is more virtuous precisely because it houses a noble prophet, and Muslims could not know, could not access the blessings of Mecca had it not been for the prophet Muhammad. So the idea of finding shelter in the prophetic sunnah and the prophetic city is fundamentally linked to two crucial concepts that inform the Muslim connection and relation with the Prophet, that of following him, al-ittiba, and of love for him, mahabba. And al-ittiba, the conscious submission to the prophetic guidance, is by necessity a manifestation of knowledge and awareness about the Prophet and ultimately of love for him. Because as the Prophet said, as recorded in Sahih al-Bukhari, none of you will have faith until I'm more beloved to him than the entire humanity. And love makes the falling of the Prophet possible. As a great scholar and Sufi Abu Talib al-Maki put it, the true mark of someone's love for the Prophet is to follow him outwardly and inwardly. By following the Prophet, then, the Muslim is guided towards God. As, as we read in Surah Al-Ali Imran, say, if you love God, then follow me. In kuntum tuhibbun Allah, fattabi'uni. And then God will love you and forgive you your sins. God is most forgiving, most merciful. So the awareness of the magnanimity of Medina that led prominent scholars like Al-Kastalani to argue that Medina is indeed more virtuous despite the tremendous honor bestowed on the Beit al-Atik, the ancient house as the Kaaba in Mecca is called, it is precisely because of the awareness, the knowledge that access to Mecca, access to the Abrahamic journey, comes by way of the saintly prophet that resides in Medina the Prophet of Praise, Muhammad As Mecca is commonly described by Muslims in terms of its gravitas and grandeur in terms of Jalal, Medina complements Mecca in terms of the spiritual beauty of Jamal. And as such, the two cities, 
they serve as markers, as signs, as reminders of God's attributes of beauty and majesty of both Jalal and Jamal. So it should be noted, perhaps, that this participation into sacred history defies profane understandings of time. The visitor to the Prophet's mosque is not simply attempting to recall a form of memory, but of presence. Since the Prophet is alive, praying in his resting place, aware of the visitors and their pleading prayers, praying for them and greeting back these visitors with greetings of peace, as it is recorded in Sahih al-Bukhari. So, this audience with the Prophet, the preparation for it, the adab, the etiquette required in anticipation of that encounter, they all serve as a warm-up for the spiritual workout of the Hajj. Vesnik, thank you so much for taking us out on such a high note of really contemp- contemplative um, presence with the Prophet, peace be upon <laughs> him, for this beautiful connection between the physical and metaphysical shelter that you've just created, you've just drawn for us. Um, I'm really grateful, especially for your uh, insights into how shelter has not just been perceived as a physical space, but certainly an inner and inward space, one that is deeply connected with the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and how present these two uh, are in Mecca in Medina and Medina in Mecca. Besnik's beautiful mapping of the so-called sacred geography of the Hejaz helps us better locate ourselves in the Hajj rituals, both physically and spiritually. As we think of physical sheltering in the various cities and miqat points, places where the pilgrim must enter the sacred state of Ihram, and of course the overall spiritual sheltering, which as Beznik highlighted just now, is deeply connected with the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. I had an opportunity to speak with Haris and Amira about their experiencing of these two physical and spiritual shelters, and their stories and reflections help me not just understand, but be able to feel how shelter in the Hajj is experienced. My name is Haris Baruki. Um, I am from the United States. I live in New Jersey, and for those who aren't aware, it's right next to New York. Um, I am 27 years old, um, and I had gone to Hajj the year prior to COVID. So just a couple months prior to COVID, actually, uh, which is in the fall of 2019, or perhaps end of summer of 2019. Could you have even fathomed at that time? I mean, how does it feel to have at least completed the Hajj before this could, you know, human, huge change in our behavior took place. Oh, subhanAllah. It was such a feeling of gratitude because mm-hmm. um, it was a very special Hajj. For all the Hajis who get to go annually, they were even remarking on that Hajj prior to COVID, even, you know, beginning that this was a special one, you know, and, and maybe we can talk a little bit about what made it so special later. Um, but once once the outbreak had taken place, so many of us from our group were like, wow, we're so grateful because, you know, many people who had booked their Hajj still have not gone, you know, yeah. uh, due to delays and, and, and the back log right now. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got to your Hajj? It's, it's, you said we were grateful. So did you go with mm-hmm. a group? How did you end up? What was your journey to the Holy Cities? Yeah, of course. So um, Alhamdulillah, we're really blessed in the States with a large Muslim community um, and one that facilitates a very, uh, you know, diverse offering of Hajj groups. Um, so my local masjid, uh, the New Brunswick Islamic Center, you know, our local scholar, he takes a group himself. 
um, you know, I've known him for many years as our imam. So, um, you know, for me, that was the first person I thought of to go with. Um, and so he went through, you know, a travel agency that's, you know, pretty well known throughout the world, um, you know, Dar es Salaam. So they, uh, you know, facilitated a lot of the, the logistics for us. Now, when it came to the group, I was really lucky in the sense that my best friend, like someone who I, I don't even say friend, he's my brother. Um, you know, he, he, he's a part of my family. Uh, he was also looking to go with his wife and his parents. Um, his parents are, you know, folks that are very close to me as well. And so it was their family of four and then myself uh, going individually. And I, and I was not married at the time. Um, and uh, we had all gone together. So it was our group of five. And, you know, they it, it was like an awesome nuclear uh, group for us to go with. So you had your own wonderful little group within this gigantic group. What was it like being one of many in this crowd? Yeah. Did you feel that you were a member of the crowd? Did you feel mm -hmm. alone at all in your Hajj or did you feel in group or both? How was it to be a part oh, of this of that. throng of pilgrims? Yeah, that, that's a that's an amazing question. Um, I think initially you feel, you know, subhanAllah, I think this is a lot of people share this Hajj experience. So maybe I'll narrate it from the group perspective that we started together. But as you go through Hajj, you realize you're Allah's drawing you to be alone for a specific reason, because you know, despite there being millions of people there, he's speaking directly to you. And I think you feel that more. And so a lot of our teachers, you know, Alhamdulillah, I was really blessed that we had so many scholars on the trip to just continually feed us that spiritual, you know, pill every day to give us and get us in that mindset. But they would say like, your aloneness is God drawing you to himself alone. Meaning he wants you without distractions. He wants you without your friends. He wants you to be solely focused and zoned in on him. Um, and so it was almost like you were prepared to embrace that alone, you know, feeling, but, um, you know, to start, you feel like you're with the group, right? You're, you're traveling in packs, right? Uh, and a lot of, you know, when you do, when you're doing the laugh event for the first time, you notice a lot of groups stay together and they, and, you know, cause many people want the, want the group leader with them. Some people, you know, perhaps the first time, uh, you know, I felt that and I loved it cause it was really nice that, you know, um, my friend and I, my, my brother and I, who I told you I was with, we had decided to take the wheelchairs upstairs. And then there's another group taking them downstairs at the, the at the Haram in Mecca. And so when we were doing that, it was like a group experience. A lot of people were asking questions. Oh, how do I do this? How do I do that? And it was really nice. There's a lot of camaraderie to it, a lot of brotherhood, sisterhood that you witness. Um, and I think the aspect of the aloneness of Hajj, um, you know, is really manifested in Arafat. When you go to Arafat, that's when, you know, everyone tells you, and it's such a unique experience for Muslims, because I think a lot of times Muslims feel the sense of like, I need to memorize du'as, I need to make sure I'm doing the ritual aspect of something correctly, which is valid, right? It comes from a good place. Arafat, the first thing they tell you, there's no prescription. There's nothing you're prescribed to read here. Do and speak to Allah from your heart. Ask from your heart, be with him. And and that was just, it took me aback because, you know, we're used to, again, that preparation of things, right? And you're supposed to prepare your conversation and the, what you want to speak with Allah about. So for me, this was the day I think that summarizes this Hajj for probably every single, you know, person who was at Hajj that year hmm. is that there was a massive thunderstorm. Um, mm -hmm. and the forecast was clear and many people are witnesses there. There's so many, this is Mutawata, right? This is like commonly known now because everybody was there and there was no forecast for this rain. And so we're at our tent. Um, and I really want to go to the mountain, uh, and our group wasn't offering that and they weren't going to take anyone to the mountain. And, um, you know, the, the tent was set up in a way that they had like individual seats for everybody and all the pilgrims were kind of getting settled in. And, you know, they, you, you pray together you pray the and Nasser, and then, you know, we had a Quran reciter come and recite some Quran to get us in the mood. Um, and then the time of our father was beginning. So I had uh, spoken to our group leader to, to, and I begged him to let me go to the mountain because we were a little bit far from there and they didn't want people going because it was very hot that day. And obviously, you know, God forbid something were to happen to you there. It's very hard for them logistically to find you. So I, you know, 
was persistent. I really wanted to go. And, um, you know, and I was like, this Hajj was meant for me to be alone for this reason. So I could do these types of things. And, you know, I'm younger right now. I'm in my 20s. People come back in their 60s and 70s and they always say, when you're younger, it's different. So I <laughs> wanted to kind of take, you know, advantage of that. So I, alhamdulillah, I made my way to the mountain. Um, you know, my brother that was with me, uh, you know, my friend Anas, he could not go because his family was there. And he's like, I got to stay with my parents. So this was truly a solo journey. Um, so I had, you know, my phone and I was Google Maps, you know, my way to the mountain. It took me, I'd say, about 25 minutes to walk there, 25, 30 minutes to get there. And it was very hot. So I constantly hydrating and making sure I'm okay. But there was an amazing turn. I'll never forget this feeling when I was alone for most of the journey. And there was just, you know, police officers and, and, and workers. And I turn a left and I just see like a horde of human beings like a drove of people, you know, no other people in Iran, Hajis who are walking to the mountain. And I just, my, my heart lit up and I was like, oh man, I was looking for this. Right. And, and, you know, some people were studying the together. Some people saying, you know, you know, just different, you know, sounds and emotions that were running. So I just joined the crowd. I just dove right in and I'm walking with them and, you know, we're at a pace going towards the mountain. And then, you know, I see it from a distance and I see the mountain. All you see is white. You see just white covering the mountain from afar. And I was like, oh, subhanAllah. And as we're walking closer, we, we're, we're all kind of getting closer to the mountain and you hear like a crack of thunder. And I look to my left and everybody just looks to their left, <laughs> like in, in like a uniform fashion. And we see clouds storming towards us, towards the mountain. And, you know, that thunder, that, that crack of thunder and, and many Hajjus will say was incredibly loud, like ear piercing loud. And we all just figured out like, okay, it's about to rain. So we're like, okay, well, no one stopped. Everyone's just going straight to the mountain. Um, and we're walking to the mountain and, you know, we're getting there. And now I'm at a point where I'm probably, you know, like, you know, maybe a hundred meters away from the mountain, you know, not, not, not too far. It didn't, I, I realized that to push any further may have, you know, taken a lot of time. So I was like, okay, I found a good spot. I'm happy here. I can see the mountain. It's right here. I can, you know, I found the Qibla and I began my du'as. And, you know, slowly, maybe I'd say 10 minutes after, you know, I was there making du'a, I opened my eyes because my eyes were closed and I look up and it's dark. It's in a sense, like it's, it's actually shaded. It was sunny and it was hot and it was bright. And now it's just shaded and the mountain is shaded. And, and, you know, the thunder at this point starts to begin with lightning. And before there wasn't any lightning visible. Now you're seeing lightning and you're seeing lightning coming down and thunder starting. And then the rain begins in a very, very ferocious fashion. Um, and this is my experience at Arafat. And I'd love to share the experience of the other hajis at the camp. But when it started, you would hear people start screaming, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, SubhanAllah, like yelling actually in their dua because you're praying to Allah at Arafat, the most blessed time of the entire year. And now it's storming on us, like literally pouring, like the type of rain that they people would pull over on the highway for, you know? And and people are, every time the thunder would crack, you hear, Allah, yeah, Allah, Allah, Akbar, SubhanAllah, Allah, Akbar. And even I was getting shook. And, you're, and people are just shivering at this point, not from the cold of the rain, but more so from the power of that moment that, you know, it's literally Allah's presence, that he is letting everybody know, I am very much here, I am very much present, and I am listening, right? Um, and, you know, SubhanAllah, I had a notebook with me. And, and I still have this notebook. It's literally like, you know, if you were to dip a notebook in water and dry it, it looks like that. Um, but it was funny because I had just themes that I wanted to ask Allah for, right? Themes that I want to go through. Halfway through, I couldn't even read it because it got soaked. And I was like, this is Allah saying, put this away and just go from the heart. Um, and, and subhanAllah, you know, we're making dua and, and, and that proceeded for uh, quite some time. And then, you know, this, this scene of sort of chaos, and I have to be honest about this, I can't, I can't shelter this experience in the sense that after that period of dua, there was a sense of, you know, people on the mountain were actually slipping. 
because it was raining so much. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, they're positioned in weird angles, right? No, one, it's not like there's chairs on the mountain, right? People are sitting sideways and, and, you know, all sorts of things. You see pictures of that, but the rain was causing them to slip. And so people start coming down the mountain with speed, some falling against their wheels, some coming down. And you, you see, you know, the Haram's are completely covered in mud. Uh, many people, some people are falling, people are now kind of making sure their kids are with them. And so the scene went from like, you know, again, serenity and unity to awe and, and, and completely just thunderstruck by, by the power of Allah to now a sense of a little bit of chaos. And, and people are now coming down the mountain. And then you see from the other side, people are still coming towards the mountain. In other words, like they didn't stop coming towards it. They're like, no, no, we're going to the, you know, the mountain. And this group is coming down and I'm kind of wasted in the middle. And I'm looking, I'm like, wait, this group is coming down here. That group's storming this way. I was like, this is how bad things happen, right? You know, you hear about the stampedes, of course, and you know, those things that cross your mind. And I'm like, oh boy, so where do I go? And I'm kind of just moving with the crowd at this point, you know, kind of like what you're doing with the off. You at one point lose control of your own body, right? You're just moving with the wave. So I'm like, all right, where is this wave taking me? now um and in my head i'm like okay this would probably be prudent for me to perhaps head back to the camp and so i'm like okay you know and i and, and i put my stuff packed up and everything i'm trying to walk away but the crowd is coming towards me and i'm not getting now the police are getting involved they're trying to have some order and it's still raining and it's still thundering and there's still lightning coming down everywhere like you are literally seeing lightning from the sky to the floor and and you know just imagine that state where that people are in um you know they're, they're still very loud cracks of thunder and i remember there's a moment where I wanted to just just adjust my haram real quickly because you know it had been a little chaotic. So I I pulled into this little corner where there's like a you could tell there was a camp that had been previously set up there, but there wasn't anyone staying there. And I, I'm just adjusting my haram, and there's a thunder, a, a lightning strike that had come. Pro I can't tell you how far it was, but it felt close enough that I could throw a ball and hit it. <laughs> and I see that and I hear it, and it was actually deafening. My ears were ringing. And I, I nearly fell to the floor and I was just cowering and I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, yeah Allah, yeah Allah, yeah Allah, yeah Allah. And I, I felt like that lightning strike could have hit me. <laughs> um, it was that close enough and, and you know, it was loud enough that my ears were actually ringing for, for a couple minutes after. So after that, you know, that, the, the rain started to slow up in the next couple minutes, you know, five to ten minutes. And the streets, you know, we were ankle up in water. Uh, you know, the streets had had pooled up enough to look like it was flooding. Um, and, you know, the drainage system wasn't keeping up with it. And so now I'm walking and, you know, just just kind of walking through the water and people are, you know, walking like the after the storm look. And, you know, and, and I honestly start breaking down and I'm like, what just happened? You know, like like what just took place? And I was I was so shook. I was so shaken to the core um, of the sense of Allah's power. I've never experienced it until this day. I've not experienced it in that capacity. And, you know, I'm, I'm walking, I'm crying. I mean, you know, you can see like a grown man, like just walking, I'm sobbing and I'm just like, what's happened? Walking to the camp. And, you know, this, I think was a summary of the Hajj for me was that this little kid walks up to me, <laughs> he puts up a cone of ice cream. <laughs> it's my ice cream. <laughs> I, I'm just like, yeah, and he sees me, I'm crying. Like my eyes are pouring. This kid just offers me ice cream smiling. <laughs> He's drenched head to toe too. <laughs> I'm like, thank you. And I grab the ice cream and I'm eating ice cream, walking back to the camp. I get to the camp and, you know, subhanAllah, that was, I guess, my experience of Arafat. And then I get back to the camp and, you know, I, I, I see everyone standing outside. Everyone's soaked. Um, you know, I was looking for my friend and I found him and I was like, hey, like, what happened? 
because it was the most beautiful, serene experience I've ever had. It was calmness and we felt Allah's mercy and rahmah upon our faces. And, you know, he's giving that experience. And like, he's like one of the imams, like he went out there in the rain and he, you know, Sheikh Hassan Saleh, a very famous scholar. He went out there, he grabbed a microphone. He started making the one Arabic and everybody flooded outside. And, you know, they had a little plane there and we're all, our hands are up and we're praying in unison. It was so calm and so serene. And yeah, the, you know, it felt so powerful to us. And to me, I was like, subhanAllah, I had the exact and utter opposite experience, you know, and, and same, same, same location that, you know, we went to the same place that we felt present with Allah, but, you know, for them, they had this sense of serenity and calmness. And, you know, the more hajis I spoke to outside of our camp as well, you know, the experience was split 50-50, you know, people, some people felt the power and jalal of Allah, some people felt the rahmah of Allah, right? Um, and, and, and that was the, the most, that was the craziest part for me, is just seeing the diverse experiences of everybody that come to Hajj, is that every single person had their own unique communication with Allah, you know, they, they spoke to Allah in that fashion, and even if it was, you know, for a minute, you, you truly, that, the proof of Allah in that moment exceeds any other, like his presence and his, uh, you know, your awareness of him, I think, is also elevated. And I apologize. That was a long string of no. conversations. Ours, please don't apologize. Mashallah. I mean, I'm so thankful that you can share that with us. I mean, what a like a supernatural event, right? An, an incredibly um, life-changing moment, really. And I think it really highlights, as you said, the the vastness and potentiality of experience. You know, there's this constant tension in Islamic discourses about unity and diversity unicity and and multiplicity and um it it keeps coming up in this in this hajj podcast again and again that you're there with the crowd and everyone is together but it is really a, a person before god and the the divine ordaining of of different events within one singular space is so varied and i'm so thankful you were able to survive and share the story and and um enjoy your ice cream cone and then be brought right back into the dunya you know in this crazy yeah. way that again the tension that we often see in islamic writing and experiencing of just you know outer worldly experience and then right back um down from the mountain back to the mountain mm -hmm. down from the mountain so yeah. That's amazing, Horace. Thank you. Well, I mean, Horace, I can ask you more questions about shelter and stuff, but I feel like you have given us such an interesting picture. I mean, would you, do you have time to go on? I mean, yeah, I can yeah, ask yeah, you more course, questions. Course, yeah, are you sure? Yeah, yeah, okay. absolutely. Because we can then use it in different episodes too. Um, yeah. uh, this this was such an incredible story. I really hope we find a place for it in the thing. Of course, beautiful. So, so Horace, you've, you've talked about this incredible exposure that you had on Arafat. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience of shelter in the Hajj? Yeah. Obviously, Hajj is this, again, completely unique experience in Muslim devotional um, habits where you are camping, you are with a huge mm -hmm. throng of people. How did you find shelter um, and where were the places you, find, you found shelter? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when it comes to shelter, I think one of the most memorable and, um, you know, exciting experiences for a lot of people to look back at is Mina, um, because that's when you're with the other pilgrims in a living capacity, right? You actually are, are inconvenienced in the sense that you're no longer in your hotel, or your private quarters, you are in a shared 
living space with other people. Um, and I think the beauty in that uh, is that you you, ha you you understand community on a different level in the sense that, you know, many people have never had a sleepover with 30 other men, you know, or 30 <laughs> other women. And so it really is a first time for everything, right? Um, and I think, you know, as, as Hajis, you, you, you see different people's experiences and that shelter, I think, is, uh, you, you, it's like human shelter, for lack of better words, uh, in the sense that, you know, that community is your shelter, that, that, that's, your, that's your family for the time that you're there. And, you know, you feel a sense of like, hey, where's that? Where's that brother? He's not here. I haven't seen him all day, you know? And, and so people will go looking for you or go asking for you, right? Um, and obviously with modern technology, it's a lot easier to do these things, but it makes me think about a hundred years ago when people were in Minna, like, I'm sure it was so different, right? To, to, to check up on somebody or to make sure everybody's okay. Um, and so that, that the, the tents that when you camp in Minna, I think, you know, it's really a time when you, you discover a lot about your social self as well. And, and, and I know people may not think that when you go to Hajj, it's more about detachment, but you're living with other people. And so you have to accommodate to, to, to living like a, like a tent, right? And, and the temple of the tent is also really important in the sense of the people you are with, like, you know, if one person is going to take the lead to say, I, I'm, I want to start reading Quran, or perhaps it's time to pray, everybody kind of follows, right? Um, and it sets a tempo, or if someone alternatively is to say, let's go and have some lovely food, you know, then other people are going to get up to go get food. And, you know, you, you notice that. And so I think our imams and our group leaders truly set the tone in the tents to make sure that we were, we were staying uh, aligned to the, to the, the ethics and the ethos of Hajj. Um, the other place I think, uh, you know, you find shelter is, is in the Haram. And, uh, you know, within the actual confines of, of the Haram in Mecca. And the the difficulty there is that, you know, and I think this is a test from Allah as well, and is that it's very easy for people to pray in your hotel or pray right outside. You step outside, the, you know, whatever hotel you're staying in, just pray outside. It's very difficult to make it inside. And, I, and it's almost like the, the jihad or the struggle that Allah puts you through to try to get through the doors, right? Like it takes physical effort, you know, even for, for someone in their twenties, like you have to prepare hours in advance of a prayer. You're not getting there 30 minutes before an hour before you're not going to get inside. That's not going to happen. Right? So for the you have to come in two hours prior and then you're not leaving for us Cause if you leave, you're not going to get back in. And then you might have a 30 minute sliver between Maghrib. So when you're going in, it truly is a shelter. You're staying there for however many salahs your body can maintain and hold for, right? Mm -hmm. So Dhuhr to Isha was a very common stretch for many people. They would just go after Dhuhr and then leave after Isha, take a nap, sleep, and then come back, after, you know? Um, and so that that aspect of when you come in, you're like, oh, thank God I made it in. There's like a sense of relief almost when you're, when you're inside the doors and you can see the Kaaba now and you you kind of set up shop, right? And you're, and you're like, okay, where do I want to park? Get your mushaf, you have your Quran, you know, you're, you're getting comfortable because like, I'm going to be here for a long time, right? <laughs> um, and if you're doing Tawaf, then you're doing Tawaf there. So I think the shelter of, you know, the Haram, uh, is, is exemplified because of the fact that it's so crowded. There's so many people trying to go that you need to kind of, um, you know, make sure you're putting an effort into have your space. You know, the convenience is removed, which I think makes it more sweet. Yeah. Harris, before we finish, um, I always have asked every person who shared a lived experience, is there anything else that you feel you'd like to share? Any other memory mm -hmm. that you, that I haven't asked you about directly that you would want to share with people who will inshallah listen to yeah. this podcast? Inshallah, yeah. The 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 reason when I was when you know you had reached out, the one thing I really want to share with everyone, especially in their twenties and thirties and forties, and even those who are teenagers, honestly, is please don't look at Hajj as something to do later in life. Hmm. Um, please don't look at Hajj as something that you know you must be married for, even because um, a lot of people I think say I want to go when I'm married. If you have the means and Allah has blessed you, I am I, I am begging you to go because. 
this will sh the, the benefit of Hajj is that the rest of your life is changed after it. So the sooner you go, the sooner that transformative experience will take place for you, right? So, you know, there's no age limit on Hajj, you know, even for young parents, perhaps if you have children who are able to go or you think you can go with them, there's so many kids there, babies that were there, you know? Um, and you just imagine like the blessing in their life from that point onward. So my wanted, you know, parting statement would be there's no age limit. There's no, you know, there's, there's no quote unquote right time. It's when you are capable of going, you try to go and make the intention and Allah will carry the rest of the way. My name is Amira Rizd. Um, I'm 38 years old. Uh, I'm from Egypt, Cairo. And I've been privileged uh, to do the Hajj in 2009, actually 13 years ago, alhamdulillah. And can you tell us a little bit about your experience of the gathering, this gigantic throng of people, this gathering, and how yeah. it was for you to shelter in that space, okay. in this gathering? Look, actually, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a bit um, uh, challenging to explain this feeling. Um, actually, for me, it was the first time to, to be for Hejaz, for the first. I always had this dream since I was a child. When I go first, it has to be for Hajj before anything. And alhamdulillah, I've been saving for that day. So alhamdulillah, I'm there. Um, actually, it's, 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 um, I think it's one of the top spiritual experience anyone would ever go through. Um, you feel you're totally disconnected from the world. Um, even when I saw in, when, when you asked me about the word shelter, I felt it's, it's a really broad word. That's when I was asking you first, it's emo emotional and physical. You see there, everything around you is very spiritual. You see God everywhere. Allah is everywhere. You, you look around, you see all people just worshiping one God. You see them all in a, in a state of humbleness. You start seeing that this ego thing is not there anymore. We're all together. You don't know the people next to you, where they're from. They're from different nationalities, different social backgrounds, different financial backgrounds. You feel we're all the same. So being there, it's, it's like, I don't know how to name it. It's like as if you're, you're washed from inside. You're getting back to, to the normal state that we should be on. It's a kind of real taskeya. I think this is this is a real cleansing for the soul. This, this is what the, you get. You're, you're totally out of this of this ego thing. So for me, this is the key thing, especially on an Arafah day. I think that's the, this this day when you're just in the open air and all people around you are doing nothing but praying together and asking Allah for forgiveness. And I think most people are praying for things that's more towards the afterlife, not in life. I think you you reach this state before Maghrib. In, in, in on Arafah day, I remember you don't remember anything about like you're just praying for the afterlife. So you just, it's just you feel in another world. Once you're back, what's that? Where am I? Where I'm from? <laughs> that's it. So um, that's in a nutshell how how it felt. You, you felt protected. I mean, you were very secured. I felt very protected at that time. And you you saw everything is very very trivial and small. Everything becomes very very small when you're when you're in such a state. And of course, for me. That's the real metaphor of the um, the real um, the day of judgment. When you feel all people, this those this amount of people, it's nothing with the real with the real thing. But people um, pushing each other, um, the crownness everywhere. Um, people are caring about nothing but um, how Allah is looking at them now, how He sees them. They want nothing but His forgiveness. So it's it's I think it's it's a it's a demo for the after for the for the judgment day. That's the thing I really ever feel when I was there. What you've described this transportation in time and space 
Do you feel that in other sort of Muslim devotional practices? Is that something unique to the Hajj and to this gathering, this being together? Yeah. No, I don't think anything. That's why I was telling you, I'm always praying to do it one day again, because it's, I I don't believe once is enough. You always, it's like a cleansing thing. Every, every couple of years you need to do with it. Um, For me, I feel it's, um, it combines the, the, all the other pillars yani, um, for me fasting and prayer when you when you when you pray five ta- five times a day um, every uh, when you fast all these things they, they cleanse you but it's very very challenging within your daily life to go into this state of devotion and total um, um, I don't distraction yes distraction and getting out of your real ego and self and life and just being with Allah I don't think this is this is doable, except in, in, in our very lucky moments when we're really blessed to have this devotion in salah, you're very focused in prayer. It, it doesn't happen, even with the most pious people. I don't think it's it's doable. I hope one day we, we achieve this. And fasting is the same. When you're fasting there, it's not like fasting here. When you fast in whenever it's in Umrah or anything, when you're there, you don't you go and don't go into any um, uh, uh, talking behind anyone's back or gossiping or something or saying a bad word anything anything we all we all go into this whether we like it or not again but there it's it's a total transformation you go out you do all the practices it's fasting and praying and everything but in as if you're in another world as I told you so you feel it's it's all it's it, it has another taste. I don't. When 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 I was first asked for this interview, I told you it was long long time ago. I thought I would never remember anything, but it just all came now. And now my only praise, Ya Rabbi, and I hope one day would be there. Inshallah. Inshallah. Again. Inshallah. I think one of the most exciting things that's come out of doing these lived experience interviews is just these are memories, but they're alive. You know, yeah, exactly. I yeah. can see in the people's eyes, in their hearts how it's alive. And so once again, you're transported in time and you're transporting all of us through time, yeah. through space, into your beautiful memories. And that is a that is a gift of this experience too, isn't it? Yes, exactly. It's a real blessing. I have to say it's a real blessing for anyone and it's, it's a real gift from God. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Can you tell us a little bit about the physical kinds of shelter that you experienced in on your Hajj pilgrimage. Where did you live? Who did you live with? And um, where did you experience shelter um, in which places and in which cities? Okay. Um, of course, the top is um, Mecca and Medina. Definitely, um, uh, those are the, the key ones. Um, the thing, of course, I will never forget is the, the period in Mina and uh, Arafah. And I remember um, my mother was not, uh, as females, I was alone. Um, um, I remember very well, I, I made a very good friend there. And the, we were together, we were sharing everything. We were going out to, to do the abolition or we'll do it together and everything we did together. It's, and that, that was the best. That's what's the only time this minute, it was a, a 24 hour thing. Uh, plus Arafah, that we that really I felt we were um, in a different kind of shelter. Otherwise, we were mainly in hotels, and it was very thank God that it was luxurious. Uh, uh, it was a luxurious experience in the places, except the the Mina and Arafah part. It was more mainly um, uh, like camps. It was camps, and uh, I, I was sitting with people I know nothing about, and you you get to know people, and you just talk about the experience together. You share a different kind of experience, even when you come back and your friends together. 
whenever you meet, you're only talking about this. <laughs> so if, if I say the shelter, I think um, I have to admit the, the one in the camps was very challenging for me because it's something really different from your life. Um, everything about the habits you do, it has, um, it has a jihad. You see the jihad here a lot because um, all your lifestyles changed. But I think it's part, again, of letting go of your ego and your desires and, and your needs for the sake of God. I'm not sure if this answered the question mm -hmm. of physical shelter. But yes, absolutely. Yeah. One thing I wanted to pick up on from that last question was just, how did you experience the two cities of, of Mecca and Medina differently? Or, or did you experience them differently? Because our... Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Tell us how. Especially it was the first time for me to be there, as I told you at the beginning. Um, Mecca, it's such a beautiful place. And the first time you see the Kaaba, oh my God. And it's, you feel your heart drops. You know, this feeling, it's its a beautiful place, but it has this, um, I don't know what it's called. They, they call it rahba in Arabic. Mm -hmm. um, it's not fear. I think mm -hmm. it's good fear, but it's uh, like jalel. awe, like awe, yeah. awe like oh amazement. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, amazement. And it has this, um, the mix of um, you want the mercy of God, but mm -hmm. this thing of al-jalel, you're afraid. Mm -hmm. you, you remember the... Um, the Jalal names of Allah, Al-Jabbar, Al-Qahar, you remember these names when you see the Kaaba and Mecca. When you go to Medina, at the first time, I just kept crying when I was leaving Medina. There's something in Medina that just softens your heart. When you're there, you feel there's something, you feel the Prophet Sallallahu is there. It's everything about his character, Sallallahu his how he treated the people, even the people there. You could feel their copies of the Sahaba. Yani it's, it, I don't know, but there's something in the spirit of the Medina that makes you, um, whenever you talk about it, you see the smile on my face. Yani it's uh, I, there's something sp very peaceful. I won't say spiritual, but spiritual is in both places. But I'd say it's very peaceful. It was such a peaceful um, place. The atmosphere there was very... Um, relaxing you don't want to go you, you'd want to live there you mean Mecca is lovely but I don't think I could live there it's it's a bit of it's a bit it has some tough things if, if we say if we talk about the the, the 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 attitude of people or something but the Kaaba has this you feel um you're always alerted and how I have to do to be doing the right thing but in in Medina I feel the mercy is is more intense. I don't know. I, I don't know. But actually, most of the people said that in the, in the, the Jalal names of Allah is, is more manifested in Mecca. And you see the mercy names and the merciful names, Al-Wadud, Al-Rahim, Al-Rahman, more in Medina. Allahu mm. Alam, subhanAllah. SubhanAllah. Where did you feel, you know, what you described about Arafah? You know, when I think of Arafah, I, I, I know I've never done the Hajj myself. But when I imagine it, I, am, I, I imagine just this, you know, ex, this crowd and complete exposure, you know, just completely out in the open air, yeah. exposed before God. So where do you find shelter, emotional, spiritual shelter in that incredible, in the incredible exposure of Hajj? You know, some one of our other guests talked about how Hajj even exposes is like a mirror to yourself, that you see things about yourself and your ego. And, and you mentioned it too. Yeah. So where do you, where did you find which rituals or which parts of the Hajj or what was an experience that, that you found shelter and kind of spiritual shelter in? Um, as I told you, I remember at Yani, the thing that uh, even after 13 years I cannot forget is the last hour starting from Asr till Maghrib this hour the moment all people are praying at the same time 
um, when you remember the hadith that um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he, he talks to, the, to, the, to his angels and he says in the, he's, he's forgiving everyone out there that you just feel that even, he, this is what I understand, that the only one who would not be forgiven, the one that he thinks that God would not forgive him, <laughs> whatever kind of sin. So I see Husnuddin thinking of how God would be merciful for you. This is what I remember very well. I would never remember, uh, forget this because after Maghrib on that day, a friend, uh, someone, you know, I, was, I was just sitting and I was very silent. She told me, what's up? I, I don't know her. I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid maybe some sins are not forgiven or something. She told me this hadith. She told me, be careful because this is the thing that will make you. On that day, God forgives everything. So you feel when you see what, this moment, you, you just um, picture when you just picture that Allah is there praising you and, and, and is being proud of you in front of his angels. And he's just telling you, I forgive you for everything. Oh my God, Danny. you don't want anything else. <laughs> Sometimes you, I pray maybe I, I, would, I wish I would die at that moment. And then I meet him on that state. And that's, I don't think there's a better moment you would ever experience or a better uh, uh, moment to die at that yes. time more than this. Only blessed ones get it. Yeah. Yes. But uh, I, I think I mean, maybe I, I think I forgot many things that happened 13 years ago and the, the experience, but I never remember. I never forget this. And the first, the, the, the moment I saw the Kaaba for the first time, that, that, that was the, I would never forget those two moments. Can you tell us, can you share that with us about the moment you saw the Kaaba for the first time? Oh, oh my God. Um, um, I remember um, um, my, uh, she, she was my teacher. Uh, God bless her soul. She just passed away uh, two years ago. I remember she, she said, when you first uh, see the Kaaba, you have one answered prayer for sure. You have to say it the moment you see the Kaaba. And um, I remember uh, she said, I, I'm telling you now, this is the Dawah you should say. So the moment, the moment I saw the Kaaba and I just remembered this um, a prayer, I just, I don't know, I just pictured the, the, that moment when I see God and I talk to him, Allah majalna min hum yarob. I just, whenever, once I saw it, I just kept crying. Really, I mean, I just kept crying in streams. Of, and my dad was with me. He told me, Khalas, it's okay. I can't believe I'm in front. It's really different. This is not how it looks on TV, you know? You just keep crying, keep crying, keep crying. And I thank God that he, that he reminded me of this dawah. And may, may this be in um May this be in her in her um, in her praise. May this I hope this this helps her now in front of God. She gave me this advice. So it's this moment, you know, some things cannot be described. I mean, I think. Yes, absolutely. And Amira, just as a final question, I mean, you live in Cairo, one of the most populous, mad <laughs> cities in the world, amazing, amazing cities. Do you ever take shelter as it were in your memories of Hajj uh, in in your daily life in your in your life after Hajj do you ever uh, go back and shelter in your memories a lot oh my god <laughs> I told you this friend whenever we, we meet we just go there with our soul we just keep talking about this experience a lot and um, subhanallah just a couple of three days ago I said Amira when will you go again it's been 13 <laughs> years come on and I found there's an interview on Hajj maybe it's a sign so Allah of course you always you always go back you know what I mean it's um I think sometimes it's like a, a wake-up call when you try to we all anyway you try you see a sin or something that you're about to do or something and then you remember 
come on mm. you, you did hajj before uh, or you remember that day it's this days in my memory since morning when i was just thinking about our interview today mm. i just said oh my god i forgot how it felt on that day i think i I'll always keep talking about arafah i think this is what stick to my mind that day i would never forget Even though Haris and Amira went to Hajj almost a decade apart and experienced radically different weather, crowds, and landscapes, they both shared what the experience of Mount Arafah, which I would imagine is the part of the Hajj with the least physical shade and shelter, given its exposure to the desert elements, they both experienced it as one of the places where they found the abundance of the most sought after shade in this life and the next, that of divine mercy. A mercy which, as Besnik spoke of, would be obscured if not for the shelter of the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, or as he put it, when describing the hajj of the Prophet, peace be upon him, the way to Mecca is through Medina. Our guests today have described in such poignant imagery the unique experience of the divine attributes of rigor and mercy in the Hajj and the connection to the harshness, unpredictability, and ineffable beauty of the desert of the Hejaz. I want to thank our three guests today, Besnik, Haris, and Amira, again for sharing with us. And many thanks to all of you for tuning in to this episode of our podcast it's your continued support of the Cambridge Muslim College that enables us to train the next generation of Muslim thinkers. Please consider making a donation to the college today to ensure we continue this valuable work. And tune in for the next episode when we explore how the Hajj connects us to our past and the future on the last day. <laughs>